Welcome to the Psychology World Podcast with me, Conor Whiteley. Psychology student and international best-selling psychology author of over 30 psychology books, bringing you the latest psychology news, fascinating psychology topics and more each week. If you want to learn more, then please check out connorwhiteley.net forward slash books. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the YouTube video or follow on your favourite podcast app. And here's the show. Hi there everyone and welcome to episode 249 of the Psychology World Podcast with me, Connor Whiteley. And today's episode is on how can autistic people be securely attached? And it is Sunday, the 21st of January 2023, as I record this. So today's episode I wanted to do were because there's a lot of myth and misconceptions about the attachment styles of all autistic people. So lots of people think that autistic people can't form secure attachments, but more modern research is actually proving that this isn't the case. But this is still challenging. It's still an area that needs to be researched and also people need to be educated on it because that's the major problem. Is that the reason why people think that autistic people can't be securely attached is it because their attachment behaviours look different to neurotypical people. So this is a really interesting um, episode that sort of blends developmental psychology and clinical psychology and this was a lot of fun to write up, it was a lot of fun to research. So what you've got that to look forward to in the content parts of today's episode. So moving on to the psychology news section, we're reading from the British Psychological Society Research Digest and the first one sort of connects to today's episode. Connective Tissues When we think of neurodivergence, our focus understandably lands on the brain, behaviour and the intersections of those with wider society. But what of the interface between the two? Our bodies. Psychologists and physicians have recognised for many years now that neurodivergent people experience physical symptoms at a higher rate than the general population. Many will be quick to bring to mind research linking autism and gut issues, or perhaps the fact that those with ADHD experience everything from metabolic disorders to migraines more often than their neurotypical peers. However, researchers have more recently become aware of a mediating factor linking neurodivergence in many individuals to these more widespread chronic physical conditions, hypermobility. And if you're a reader of the Psychologist magazine, which is a UK publication by the British Psychological um, Society, Emma Barron actually has a really good a summary and exploration of this in a lot more depth. But focusing on the actual article itself, I mean, that I think this is quite important to realise as future or current clinical psychologists and also like just as the general public because of this week I've been having quite a lot of like really long, really lovely conversations with like one of my friends. And we were having a very particular conversation 
I will not tell you the topic, <laughs> but we were having this a conversation, and it was really nice. We were both enjoying the conversation, but my body was shaking so badly because this is a conversation I don't normally have, have though, or with like um, with anyone. And I actually like I said that to them, like um, and my body's like quite funny because in this a conversation, I'm not nervous, I'm enjoying it, but my body was really shaking. Which I uh, just like goes to show that in autistic people, there always is that disconnector between what we think we're feeling and how our body reacts. And sometimes we need to listen to our bodies to see what we're actually feeling. So that's always quite an interesting thing. But again, back to the clinical psychology point, I think that given the um, prevalence rate of other neurodivergence like autism, ADHD, all of these things are really important to be aware of. Because even if an, an autistic client or an ADHD client comes into our therapy rooms um, with mental health difficulties that are not associated with their autism or their neurodivergence, it's still important to be aware of because the stuff that we do, like for example how we act, how we interpret their actions, and also just our and also like just our therapy in alignment can all have an impact on the therapeutic alliance and the therapy itself. So it's important to be aware of. And when it comes to just being um, members of like wider society, you can like in my this is a future podcast episode. There is something about um, how to make um, society better for all autistic people, but I just have not got around to like, well, to actually doing like that yet. But it's still important to be aware of that autistic people and other neurodivergent people do experience physical symptoms at a higher rate than the general population. So it's important to be mindful of. And if you realise that someone is, and like whether this is someone you're working with, someone you're friends with, or maybe one of your family members is neurodivergent, then it's important to at least make some accommodations just so um, they can have like, a nicer and easier time. So the second one is all work and no play. Many of us don't want to be working this hard. Low wages after years of stagnation have left those in the UK £11,000 worst off as of March 2023, often necessitating more hours on the clock. Many employers are becoming increasingly demanding to meet their tighter bottom lines, with others, with others harnessing exploitative work factors and workers often left with no choice but to meet harmful demands in order to stay in employment. Yet, some overwork, not out of necessity, but compulsivity, continues when it supposes to be a, a detriment to mental and physical health. Being a so-called workaholic isn't about working long hours because of external pressures, but a sense that one has no control over how long they work. This leads to extreme behaviours such as logged in to workplaces extremely late, working through the night, or excessively thinking about work. Some argue it constitutes an addiction, much of the same as gambling or substance abuse. Writing in the Journal of Occupational Health Psychology, 
a team of Italian researchers exploring how these individuals actually feel at work, finding that even while in engaging with a, a possession, negative effects still linger. So I think there were two main things I to actually take away from this psychology news section or article is the more the fact that we are very much worse off than right well in uh, the UK than we like used to be because of our horrific lower wages and our terrible economy. And I've had lots of conversations over the years about how even though people are only contracted to work so many hours they actually end up going above, above and beyond just to actually stay employed to keep the boss happy to avoid a conflict even though I can see in hell they acknowledge that they actually don't like it and it does have a lot of like negative um, mental health and physical health benefits and also family relationships that can actually like get a, a bit bumpy that way because they're always at work their partners or their families know that their boss isn't treating them properly and so on. So it's not right, but unfortunately, it's the world we live in. I still think that you should definitely stand up for yourself if you can and just make your boss know that this is not okay. And just, I, I don't know, I think it's very, it's very, very tricky. Anyway, though, that's like the first part. And we all need to be aware that what happens in the workplace does have for, for mental health and physical health um, negative outcomes, which could have a, a knock-on effect when they like come to like see us. Because the problem that I'm, I've heard about like lately, and to be honest, this has always been a problem, is that the problem with most mental health services being um, nine till five is that people who work 9 to 5 can't get mental health support because by the time they finish work then all the psychological services are closed and they're no longer available so people that need to work 9 to 5 and they cannot afford to get childcare they cannot afford to take a day off or work less then they aren't going to get the mental health support that they need but again that's another issue and actually on a second board, I actually can't say too much about being a workaholic because I'm not really too familiar with what being a workaholic actually in adults and the actual negative um, side effects because I'm not one to be, I've never really like read into it. But I know the BPS does have a good um, write-up at the Research Digest website. So well, the last one is, keeping secrets isn't always a bad thing. Keeping secrets is a generally thought of as a quite a negative thing. Some of the research we've covered, for example, has found that secrets can leave us feeling literally weighed down, whilst others have shown that even children understand why secrets can be jam damaging when handled badly. But there are times when keeping secrets can be positive, argues a recent paper. In the recent publication, Michael Sinclair of Columbia University and his colleagues look at the bright side of keeping secrets and find that keeping positive information hush-hush can actually provide us with a psychological boost. 
And this I can definitely understand because I can definitely understand if, that if you keep negative in an affirmation, like someone's a dying, someone's a got a health or condition, someone's um, been a diagnosed with well with a, a terminal illness. So if you keep them a secret um, against family members, friends, and other people that deserve to know because they're really close then yes, keeping that secret can definitely be bad. It's like, well, I know that from personal experience. When handled badly, yes, that can be very damaging. But good stuff and like a positive secrets, like positive information, then that can definitely make you feel good because if someone trusts you enough to tell you a secret, for example, they're getting married, they're pregnant, um, and there's tons of other like egg examples, then that can make you feel really valued, that can make you feel great because it proves that they trust you. And come on, who doesn't lie privileged to work privileged in affirmation? So it does make you like feel good. And I think that it also has the lots of like relationship and also friendship benefits too. So I can definitely like see it. So I hope you enjoy the psychology news section. So let's move on to the personal update. So we're moving on to the personal update. So this week has been the first week back for university students and I think that everyone can back me up here and say that it is a minor culture shock considering at least in the UK we have we have four weeks off for the winter break and typically it has been so nice having the four weeks off for the winter break. But yes, I've been having to do stats revision quite hard and now everyone, I'm really sorry I've not updated the website with the status information. Well, that is officially on the to-do list for this week, actually. So it should get done. It will get done, I hope. <laughs> but I hope so. So it was a bit of a culture shock to like go back to um, university having to sit through lectures. But it's been a really good week. Week though, it was actually really nice going in the back, going into the stats lecture, having a decent lecture because um, the professor at my university, she is lovely. I mean, she's one of the best um, psychometricians about, and she's really, really famous in like her field. So um, it's really great to teach her because because she's so passionate. It actually comes across and to be honest like she's entertaining to watch like she actually makes you want to learn so she's really good and i'm really happy about that but on the student side it was so nice to see other students sit with them and actually hear that people have actually missed me which i found so weird to hear but it was so nice so so i had some great conversations and it was just such a nice week though and i've had ethics approvals um, me and my supervisor have been talking about another study that we're going to run um, very, very soon. So, um, to be honest, because it was my idea, she said, yes, I would really like to do um, another study on the topic that you want to do. Yeah, so we're meeting on Thursday, so I've basically got about four days to come up with an actual proposal for her and actually plan it out in any great depth. Uh, because even though I know she really will not care, and um, if I've uh, prepared or not, but I sort of want to do this a bit professionally, <laughs> professionally. And 
and just have some fun like with it. And as much as I would never say this, long-term listeners of the podcast episodes will know I hate reading academic papers, but sometimes on certain topics it can actually be fun. Because this is the thing, I think when you find your niche in psychology or what actually gets you excited, then you will really start to enjoy academic papers and research a lot more. So I am definitely looking forward to reading some more papers. And as always, I always love to hear your thoughts and feelings on today's episode. Send me can email me, conorwiley.net. You can always leave comments on the show notes at conorwiley.net forward slash podcast. And you can always tweet me on Twitter at sci-fi I always love to hear from all you because the video has made the podcast feel more like a conversation. And you can also leave a comment on the Facebook post at Connor Whiteley Psychology Offer. Oh, and that's something else that I didn't like mention. So, the British Psychological Society has officially approved my post a graduate membership, meaning I can now use letters after my name, which is why if you actually go on the Facebook post, and to be honest, the same goes for Twitter, it's not Connor Whiteley Psychology Offer, it's a Connor Whiteley the letters then like psychology or first that i thought was actually really good and i'm actually quite impressed <laughs> and today's episode has been sponsored by developmental psychology a guide to child and developmental psychology so uh, the reason why this is a, a great sponsor for today's episode is because it's really great really easy to un- understand books helps to uh, explain how a child development happens, but also how attachment theory happens. Uh, so it talks about what is attachment theory, how does it work, and why is it in, uh, important for neurotypical children. And then it also talks about um, the development of a play, cognitive development, brain development, and so many other really quite interesting topics, which as much as like you say oh, I didn't like developmental psychology, the more I do it, uh, it is actually really quite interesting uh, because it is in Portland and it is useful. So it's a quite large and like, quite thick uh, book actually helps to make uh, developmental psychology interesting and that uh, you actually want to read it and enjoy it because as always, if things are written in my nice, easy to understand conversational term. So I really enjoy this book and I really do recommend it if you want to learn more about today's episode. So that is Developmental Psychology, a guide to developmental and child psychology, available from all major ebook retailers and you can get the payback and hardback version from Amazon, your local bookstore or local library if you request it. And you can also get the AI audiobook version from selected retailers like Kobo, Barnes & Noble, Google Play and certain library systems or and also Spotify. And whilst buying books helps to support the creation and the editing of the podcast, my time is sponsored by my wonderful patron. And if you wanted to become a patron and to get um, access to a whole host of great rewards, now you can at patreon.com forward slash the psychology world podcast. So that's enough for the personality, let's move on to the content part of today's episode. So moving on to the content part of today's episode. 
So we're going to be talking about how can autistic people be securely attached. So this is quite a fun one. It definitely deals with a lot of myths and misconceptions. I think that this is just really, really useful for all of us to be aware of, whether we're current or future clinical psychologists or just members of the public that are interested in psychology or other psychology prof professionals. How can autistic people be securely attached? So personally, I wanted to start off this podcast episode by saying that, that this is very interesting to me because for the most part, I have believed the myths and misconceptions surrounding secure attachment as well as I have vivid memories of a sitting in my developmental psychology lectures and being upset at how I didn't have secure attachments. Of course, part of this was down to my trauma and abuse, the negatively impacted how I was able to form attachments, but another part of this attachment topic is what we talk about in today's episode. So, autistic people can be securely attached, it just might look different to when neurotypicals are securely attached. Reminder about attachment. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, in a lot of different episodes, humans find it flat out critical to create emotional bonds and seek close proximity to the caregiver in childhood. This is even more the case when we are in a danger or there is a perceived threat. Therefore, all babies attach to their caregivers and it is the attachment we form in our early years that provides us with a blueprint for how we approach relationships in later life. As a result, as we grow during childhood and into adulthood, everyone counts on having attachment figures to support us and actually be there for us when we need them most. Since this helps us to explore the world, like a secure base, and we can reach out to them for help when we are hurt, threatened, or in need of comfort. This is important in neurotypical children, but having a secure attachment helps them to self-soothe and regulate their arousal. These behaviours are shown time and time again in research settings by pointing, showing objects at, and looking at their mothers when compared to less securely attached peers, with caps and all, 1994 being a, being a good example. As well as these neurotypical children with secure attachment get distressed when their mothers leave the room and they can play with her and be comforted by her when she returns. Why was it believed all autistic children could not form secure attachment? Whereas people used to believe that all autistic children couldn't have any secure attachment in any relationship because they didn't always show these behaviours. Modern research demonstrates this is not the case, and all autistic children can it very much form secure attachment. For example, a systemic review from Tegan and all 2017 showed that 47% of autistic children could be classified as having secure attachment, yet the systemic review also highlights how there were less Securely attached or were autistic children compared to the neurotypical peers. This could be because of 
on occlusion floors in how secure attachment is measured. Since a lot of her studies concluded that autism impairs the person's ability to, to form secure attachments, and the studies conclude that the high level of stress that is created for parents by parenting an autistic child makes the parents less likely to be responsive, and this causes a child not to form a secure attachment. Now, I do not like this um, conclusion because this is massively flawed. Because I do not buy these um, explanations for a moment. Because there is something me and a bunch of autistic friends spoke about a few months ago. So, in about November 2023. Because autistic people can have a lot of empathy. Like, one of my friends in particular... They know I am I'm full of empathy towards them and everything, but it looks different. And also some of my other friends know that I can be quite empathetic towards them, depending on the moment. And considering that secure attachment is based on emotional bonds and empathy is a is a type of emotional response, it's why I firmly believe that autistic people are capable of secure attachment. Because autistic people can form emotional bonds. In fact, God, I think that um, we can form form like incredibly strong emotional bonds at times. And also, I have actually read the research on this topic, so I do know the answer. <laughs> anyway, another reason why these two conclusion flaws are not correct is because they pathologize autism and they make autism sound like a burden. But neither of these two points are even remotely correct. You see, we need to reframe the attachment behaviour of autistic children as a unique expression and not some wiring or deficiency in their neurobiological processes. And yes, I think you can tell how irritated I am. In fact, when I was writing this, I actually wasn't irritated, but now I am. <laughs> How to reframe the attachment behaviour of autistic children. So the first part of the solution to this problem is to allow us to really understand how all autistic children work in terms of their attachment behaviour. We need to realise that just like how parents are confused about their child's behaviour, the exact same is probably true of the child. They probably don't understand their parents' behaviour this is why communication is important between both parties. In addition, if there is an autistic child and a neurotypical parent, then this can create a lot of difficulty in, in understanding, interpreting and predicting the behaviour of the other. This results in both the child and the adult misunderstanding and to get confused about the other. However, the solution to this confusion and misunderstanding is about educating parents on what attachment behaviours look like in all, all autistic children so that they can better understand, read and respond to their baby's cues. Remember, attachment is about the emotional bond between a child and a caregiver in response to the caregiver's um, responsiveness, more or less. That's why yeah, this is flat out critical for parents to understand. Moreover, there is evidence suggesting the benefits of getting parents to understand the mental states that underlie behaviour. This comes from Foggy 1991, 
and the parental reflective functioning, which is the definition that I just gave you. Because this researcher believed that reflective functioning is the key to being a sensitive as well as attuned parent, and this paves the way forward for secure attachments. Nonetheless, we need to find out if parental reflective functioning works for both autistic and neurotypical children, or only neurotypical children. Does parental reflective functioning work for autistic children? If we look at the historical research, the answer seems to be no, because past research firmly blames autistic traits and symptoms for impairments in reflective functioning. The so-called theory behind this is because autism makes a person avoid eye contact, avoid close proximity to their caregiver, and position their bodies differently. Of course, this completely misses the fact that secure attachment represents itself differently in these two clinical populations. A better way to frame this impairment, I say in air quotes, and I really don't like that term because autism isn't an impairment for either the child or the parent. Instead, these autistic symptoms or traits should be thought, as, thought of as mutual challenges. Because I can promise you, you might not be able to understand the, the behaviours of all autistic people, but I cannot understand your behaviour either. Like small talk, I really do hate small talk with a passion. Anyway, yeah, these are mutual challenges because both parties have a hard time understanding each other and we need to remember that reflective functioning is a two-way street and the challenges in communication between a parent and child might cause dysregulation, leading parents of autistic children to feel like bad parents or lose their own confidence. But there is always hope. Instead, parents can become educated and develop a better understanding of the communication patterns of autistic children. This allows parents to become more sensitive to their child's needs and this results in a rather wonderful positive feedback loop. For example, if we take a rather classic example of all autistic behaviour about eye contact, if we teach parents that instead of avoiding eye contact being a sign of disinterest in you and teach parents it is just a neuro difference that doesn't mean anything bad, then this can help caregivers feel better, be more responsive and help caregivers not create a negative feedback loop as they believe their child has rejected them. This is also why identifying autism earlier is in importance so parents can be educated on attachment behaviours and that this knowledge can enhance their reflective functioning in a term, or will help parents to become more sensitive to their baby's cues. Why maternal insightfulness is needed for secure attachment in autism. So towards the end of this podcast episode, I want to bring our attention to Oppenheim and Court Carey 2008 because they studied all autistic children and found that maternal insightfulness was a key factor in a secure attachment. Pulling a quote from the study, they define this as, open quote, 
the ability to think about the motives that underlie the child's behaviour, to be open to new and unexpected behaviours of the child, to show acceptance of the child's challenging behaviours and to see the child in a multidimensional way. Close quote. And what is really interesting about this finding is that the severity of, of the child's traits themselves were not important for secure attachment. Instead, what was important was the caregiver's capacity to enter the child's point of view and empathy, which I think just goes to show how important education is and it just have been willing to learn a kind of massively positive impact on the child's and parent's life. Furthermore, this study demonstrated that secure attachment does look different to neurotypicals. Due to some autistic children showed distress when the mother left and then regulated and self-soothed when the mother returned, even though they did not in that act or show a close proximity to the caregiver. In other words, just because a child didn't have a closer close proximity or in that act too much, or at all, with a caregiver when they were in the same room, it flat out did not mean the autistic child didn't care when the caregiver left. This shows the autistic children wanted and watched the caregiver in the room, and this only means one thing. Conclusion Overall, at the end of this podcast episode, we can confirm that just because an autistic child doesn't seem excited or interested in a caregiver being in the same room as them, this doesn't mean in any way that the autistic child doesn't care or isn't attached to the caregiver. The presence of a caregiver still helps the child to feel safe and secure and connected and in that sense there is barely any difference between secure attachment behaviours and its development in autistic and neurotypical children. Of course, parents need to be educated, they will need to be willing to be sensitive to their child's cues and they will need to be willing to be in a sightful. But autistic children can form secure attachments, just like neurotypical children. It might look different, but it is still there. And being a child that is securely attached and knows that, that they can go to their caregivers for love, support and comfort, now that really is the best feeling in the world. So I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode and you got something out of it. I know that I did because typically I have really have like given up saying that I don't like developmental psychology because I think it's just one of those things where I think that all fields of psychology have areas we do not enjoy. Like even clinical psychology i'm sure if i really thought about it there'd be some areas that i'm just not interested in and to be honest that's okay we are allowed not to be interested in that in that sort of stuff but equally i think all areas of of fast psychology actually have something that we can be interested in for example developmental psychology i say i'm not interested but give me developmental psychology and autism then I'm very interested. Granted, it has a massive overlap with uh, clinical psychology and my personal experience and my friends, but that's still great. I'm still interested and I always 
always want to learn more. So I hope you found today's episode useful. If you know someone who would find it useful, then please share it with them. I'm always really grateful when wonderful people help spread the word about the podcast. And if you want to learn more, then definitely check out Developmental Psychology, a guide to developmental and child psychology, available from all major ebook retailers. And you can order the paperback and hardback version from Amazon, your local books or local library if you requested. Or just to pick up the AI narrated audiobook available from select retailers, including Spotify. And if you want to become a patron, then just head over to patreon.com forward slash the Psychology World Podcast. So have a great day, everyone, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. Please remember to like the video and subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And if you wanted to learn more, then please check out the backlist of the podcast episodes or my books at conwhitely.net. So have a great day and I'll see you next time.